My name is Steven Renderos. Um, I'm the Executive Director of Media Justice. My pronouns are he, him. Today, we are talking about achieving media justice in the Biden era. Can you first tell me a little bit about what the media justice movement is and what the goal of the organization is? Sure. Media Justice is a national movement building institution that has been around for over 10 years. Um, we're based in the Oakland uh, Bay Area um, in California. We, you know, our mission is to fight for the digital rights of people of color in the United States. Uh, and in doing that work, um, part of what we're trying to do is ensure that everyone has access to the communications tools that they need in order to participate in everyday society. Um, but also fighting back the ways in which media and technology are used as forces of harm against communities of color. Um, so in that work, uh, we coordinate a national network called the Media Justice Network that has 100 social justice, racial justice organizations that are members, affiliate members uh, all across the country. Right. And on the Media Justice website, it quotes, Media justice exists when we are all connected, represented, and free, when fundamental communication rights are widely experienced by everyone, regardless of social power and position, just like you stated. What exactly did the Trump administration do to counter media justice? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of what they did initially was just try to undo a lot of the work that we'd been engaging in um, under the, you know, the Obama administration, um, expanding um, access to the internet by uh, modernizing low-income programs like uh, Lifeline, which provides subsidies to low-income families um, to get access to, to a cell phone or to the internet. Um, they certainly increased funding for, you know, the Trump administration increased funding for the sale and use of technology by local police departments. Um, they, you know, repealed net neutrality, which was, you know, the kind of the First Amendment rules of the internet. Um, you know, they went out of their ways also to to not really um, provide a check on, you know, the, the growing um, uh, financial and societal power of tech companies, you know, and this like, if we think about the Trump administration, they came in post the 2016 elections, an election in which, you know, Russia, a foreign country had been, you know, directly involved in trying to manipulate the outcome of that election. And a lot of what they leveraged um, was, you know, the, the power of our tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter to spread mis and disinformation um, and did it to great effect. And under the Trump administration um, and under, you know, under Congress over the last four years, there were no moves to really try to hold those tech companies accountable. Um, so over the last, you know, over that time, these companies have largely been left to regulate themselves, to make their own decisions about um, what they can and can't do. Um, and it's had a very tremendously negative effect on our society. Um, you know, just looking at the events of, of January 6th and the Capitol riot, um, there's no way that that happens without um, letting tech companies just operate in the ways that they have by allowing the spread of mis and disinformation, allowing the spread of a growing kind of white supremacist ideology across these platforms, um, which allowed groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to grow their ranks. Um, so there's a lot that in the Trump administration they did to really, you know, utilize and leverage 
technology in ways that were harmful against communities of color. Um, we saw the, you know, the increased use of um, surveillance tech by local police departments, like purchasing facial recognition software, you know, purchasing cell phone interceptors um, known as stingrays, um, relying on the collection of data, particularly around immigrants and sharing that with, you know, local police departments and federal law enforcement agencies. There's so many ways in which, you know, the media and technology was leveraged as a way to cause harm against communities of color. Right. And you mentioned facial recognition technology. Can you explain the effects of this facial recognition technology and how it's dangerous for marginalized communities? Sure. I mean, in short, facial recognition essentially creates a face map or a face print is what they call it um, of your face in order to um, against a larger database, be able to identify other images, other pictures that contain your face. Um, you know, at, with no pun intended, at face value, that seems like a workable technology, but every research that has been done uh, on the topic has demonstrated just the vast amounts of, uh, of bias that exists within this kind of software, um, particularly because it was developed by predominantly white men um, on data sets that were predominantly white, meaning that if you're a woman, if you're a woman of color, if you're a you know, non-white person, particularly black, facial recognition um, has been demonstrated through, through studies to consistently be biased um, and inaccurate at identifying you. And there was a very popular um, case of this in uh, Detroit, um, in Wayne County, uh, last year, uh, where a gentleman of the, by the name of um, Robert Williams was identified by a facial recognition tool that um, Detroit Police Department were using to identify a suspect of a robbery. Um, it wasn't him. Um, and any kind of, you know, with our own eyes, we could have seen that it wasn't him who was the, the suspect in the image. Uh, but this facial recognition software spit out um, his name and his identity is the person who was likely the match to that image. Um, and he was arrested and spent time in jail. And that's all, that's a traumatic experience in contact with police that for any person of color um, is a challenging thing to deal with and not something that goes away simply because they made a mistake and they let you free. And in this particular case, we know that they made a mistake, but in so many cases, we won't know that. Um, and beyond that, it's, it's such an invasive tool that it starts to have implications to other facets of our life. Um, and we've seen evidence over this last year, particularly in the aftermath of the uprisings that occurred following the, the, the murder of George Floyd, how police departments were utilizing this tool um, to identify uh, protesters who were out exercising their First Amendment rights. Um, so beyond the accuracy of the, the technology, in the hands of police, um, institutions that already replicate racial disparities, it will only make it worse. Um, and that's why we've been in support of banning the use of this tool um, from local police departments. And we're a part of efforts here in the Bay Area to pass the nation's first facial recognition ban um, in San Francisco, have supported efforts in other parts of the Bay Area and um, have amplified the work of other local groups doing this um, across the country in Boston and, and most recently uh, Minneapolis were a couple cities that have passed uh, additional bans on facial recognition. And we believe that that's the direction that 
that tool should be going in and, and are actively supporting efforts at the national level within Congress to, to push forward a moratorium or a ban on facial recognition. Right, right. And that was my next question to really ask, how can we make this into widespread legislation? But thank you so much for your answer. Digital communication has the advantages such as crowdsourcing and global connectivity, but pitfalls such as misinformation and trolling. In the Biden era, what can we do to make the internet and social media a safer place? Yeah, I mean, I think it begins with, if we're looking to address mis and disinformation, we need to tackle it at its root cause. Um, and so much of the efforts around mis and disinformation have been focused on trying to remove bad content once it's out there, um, and not as much uh, time focused on why is it spreading as easily as it is. And it's not because simply because you know a, a conspiracy theory like QAnon just appeals to so many people and it becomes you know popular overnight. The reality is, you know, with with that conspiracy theory, QAnon that that posits that there are um, you know, there's a cabal of, you know, secret pedophiles running the government. Um, the reason that that has spread so widely, you know, has been because of the infrastructure that a lot of these platforms have provided to amplify, um, you know, to amplify content that drives a lot of engagement. Um, so, you know, companies like Facebook know this, that the content that outrages people that taps into fears, those are the things that people will share more, will like more, will comment on. And because these platforms are largely profit-driven, their number one incentive is to drive more engagement, um, which is how we saw, you know, post the 2020 elections, the stop the steal, not just narrative, but the infrastructure behind it, the people organizing around that, this idea that the elections have been stolen, the reason that grew to be such a large movement was because Facebook had um, amplified that that story through their platform. So I think if we're looking for solutions, we have to really tackle it at the source. We have to remove uh, the incentive of platforms from you know just amplifying the content that drives the highest engagement, and we need to pivot towards like really tweaking the algorithms to prevent you know, some of the more harmful things that happened, like the group suggestions that allowed, you know, a stop to steal Facebook group to grow from nothing to, you know, thousands of followers overnight. Um, so, so we have to go after the root cause. And, and the reality is uh, going after the algorithms, giving people more control over the data that's being collected on them and preventing platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram from just, outright collecting treasure troves of data on you, um, that needs to be limited completely. And then lastly, I would say that, you know, the, the tech ecosystem that exists around disinformation, it's, it's a lot of the same players. There's a handful of companies that dominate the vast majority of the information that gets spread through the internet. Um, and you, I, we think that, members of Congress and the president need to look very keenly at where do we need to break up some of these companies, your Googles of the world, your Facebooks that on their own hold such an, an immense amount of power um, to really shape the reality that we live in and shape the reality for people and, and distort what is truth and what is not truth. 
um, we think those are those are places to look at, you know, digital privacy laws, tweaking algorithms and breaking up some of these companies. Yeah, you mentioned the far right conspiracy group QAnon that is gaining attention and popularity in recent times. Is there a way to almost permanently combat and dissemble these groups that spread malicious misinformation and the use of hate speech? Yeah, I mean, I think that it begins with platforms making this a priority. Um, for, for many years under the Trump administration, platforms like Facebook were hesitant to remove some of the, you know, the largest uh, distributors of hateful content and disinformation because doing so might, um, might have them viewed as being partisan. You know, and there, there's been, I think the right has done uh, an effective job of perpetrating a false narrative that these platforms are by and large conservative, uh, are biased against conservatives, which any, any study that's been done on how content performs on these platforms will tell you that conservative content, right-leaning content always does better than anything that's left-leaning or even centrist or moderate. Uh, so it's just fundamentally not true, but that's the story. Um, and so for for a lot of choices that the platforms have made over the years, they've opted not to deplatform Trump when they could have done it a lot sooner. Um, and finally, you know, Twitter finally permanently banned uh, Trump's Twitter account following the the Capitol riots, which is something that we'd been asking them to do for over two years. Um, and so I think it fundamentally comes down to if, you, if we want to address it sooner um, and completely, you know, remove some of this content from the bigger, more popular platforms that exist, it really takes these companies making it a priority. Um, it also takes, you know, laws and policy that incentivizes platforms to remove some of this content um, sooner in the process. And it's not like these companies, tech companies, haven't figured out how to do this before. When the world was making it a priority to, you know, clamp down on the the rise of Islamic extremism, you know, through groups like ISIS online, many of these platforms were really effective at removing that content. And I don't really hear anybody talking about how Twitter, um, Facebook, or any tech infrastructure is being leveraged to like you know, to mobilize um, and radicalize people online. It's just not happening. And the reason it's not happening as much is because these platforms made it a priority and they, they took care of it. Um, and I think it goes to some of the, you know, some of the double standards that exist um, that have existed, not just within tech companies, but in the United States is where we're really good at dealing with like violent extremism when it's being perpetrated by folks that are not white and we're really terrible um, and just not effective at, at tackling this problem when it's white people that are the main perpetrators of that violence. Um, and I think that goes both for the Capitol insurrection that we saw on January 6th and any of the you know, mass shootings that we've seen over the last few years from El Paso to um, the Christchurch killings, um, Christchurch mosque killings in, in New Zealand um, to you know, to any number of, of you know, kind of violent um, events that we've seen perpetrated by white supremacists. Um, so it's not a problem that just is confined to tech companies. I think it's a societal problem that there's a really real inability to address this, this, uh, this issue from its root cause. Um, 
but I think it's making it a priority that 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 makes the difference. And I, I do hope that the Capitol insurrection and 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 what what happened. Um, it becomes a wake-up call for for us to address this more fundamentally and make it a priority moving forward. Right, right. That makes sense. And then moving on to our last topic of prison reform, what does media justice advocate regarding prison reform, specifically giving inmates increased access to communication? Yeah, in general, I mean, I think that, you know, as an organization, we believe that the right to communicate belongs to everyone. Um, In the digital age, that obviously means, you know, addressing the digital divide and getting folks online. Um, but there are also folks in our society that overly rely on kind of more traditional forms of communication. If you're incarcerated, uh, maintaining contact with your loved ones on the outside, it's such a critical part of the process of reentry. Because most folks that are arrested, most folks that go away to prison, will at some point be released and sent home. And so having those, maintaining those relationships becomes so incredibly important to, to their successful reentry um, back to society. Um, beyond that, I think one of the things that we're also paying attention to is, um, you know, the pandemic this past year, I think, made very real for folks um, how critical it was to have access to the internet and, and how at a disadvantage millions of people have been because they, they, they aren't able to afford or maintain an internet connection in their home. Um, and so I think one of the, our observations has been that like the model of giant monopolies connecting everyone hasn't worked, you know, Comcast um, and, you know, the big internet service providers uh, in the US, AT&T and Verizon, the model of having them build out this infrastructure and, and get people connected just hasn't worked. Um, and so for us, we believe that the solution is, you know, planning for a future in which we can be more future-proof to, to the crises that our society has dealt with recently so that we can navigate the next pandemic in a way in which folks are online and connected um, and can succeed can gain access to education, can maintain their jobs because they can work remotely from home. Um, and we have to do that for every other fast, every other kind of natural crisis that's come our way, uh, like wildfires and hurricanes and even the cold weather snaps that we're seeing in Texas. Like those are things that are only going to continue to happen. And our communications infrastructure is has not caught up to ensure that we're resilient to those moments. Um, I think the the other thing I would say is on the on the carceral side, we have to we have to undo this belief that technology can replace the human-centered solutions that we need um, to address structural racism. And nowhere is this more true than in the criminal legal system. Um, we have for a couple decades now, you know, seen and understood the the racial disparities that exist in, in, in who is arrested and who is detained and um, mass incarceration as a, as a societal problem that we need to solve is something that is widely recognized. The solution in many cases that has been put forward is, well, let's go ahead and decarcerate, but use technology as a way to do that by putting people on electronic monitors 
or using risk assessment algorithms to make decisions about whether someone should be let go, you know, let go home or not. Um, and the same is true in other places where there have been large societal problems um, around racism from police violence. Well, let's put body-worn cameras on police officers. Let's use facial recognition software to pandemics. Like let's use contact tracing apps to collect data on people and share that sensitive health data with law enforcement agencies, with health agencies, um, you know, with climate change, expanding the use of kind of surveillance tech um, to combat climate change. There are many places in which technology keeps routinely being presented as the solution that will that will do it all. And the reality is none of those technologies can really change um, and address what are really human-centered problems. Um, you know, that means in, in ensuring that everyone has, you know, the a livable wage and a job that pays them well, that people have access to the basic needs that they need, like education, like housing, um, like the internet. Uh, we think that there are ways in which we can shift the site of solutions away from technologies that don't work. And, and that's why we're, you know, a lot of our campaigning has been around, you know, taking away the tools that aren't working, banning facial recognition, eliminating the use of electronic monitoring, um, you know, stopping the stopping the collection of data that's not necessary. So, um, so those are the things I would say. I think to speak to, you know, uh, how we expand access for people, but then how we ensure the technology isn't also isn't continuously being used to create more harm.